Welcome to Inspired Artist Podcast with me, Sirgan Carr. In this episode, I welcome back Matthew Remsky. You should listen to the first one we did called Situationally Vulnerable before this one is my recommendation. And before we start, let me mention that this podcast grows to the degree that you guys engage. So if you are enjoying it, please rate it, subscribe, tell your friends. I got to speak with Matthew Remsky a second time, which was a huge honor. He talks about cultic organizations, charismatic leaders. He's done a bunch of research. He's written a book, and I will link all of this in the podcast description. So please check that out. Um, In this one, we talk about moving forward. After the last one, I really wanted to hone in on things that people who were wrapped up in this, you know, what do I do about my kundalini yoga practice now that I know that Yogi Bhajan has been accused of rape by multiple women, has been accused of abuse by multiple people, um, that people have been have left have been shamed for leaving that there has been suppression of people's voices how does that make me feel about my practice a lot of people are asking themselves that question right now and there are a lot of people who that we talk about in the podcast who have had no pre-organization identity Uh, Matthew talks about this pre-cult identity where you can sort of repair Uh, yourself or come back to an understanding of who you are before you joined the cult. And for many of the people involved in 3HO and Kundalini Yoga, that's not an option because they were born into it. So we're seeing a second and also third generation of people born into this organization. And should they choose to distance themselves from the organization, um, what are the steps that they could possibly take to figure out who they are? outside of the confines of this organization. It's very interesting stuff. I am totally inspired by talking to people who have different perspectives than me, and I am so interested in what people have to say, especially when it's not something that I would have thought of or you know, maybe even agree with, but I really value his position, and I loved the last part of the podcast where he talks about all of the stuff that you love is that which you have created. So we are taking responsibility for ourselves in so many ways when we confront issues like this and it is difficult and he recognizes that. So I hope you enjoy this one and here we go. Right, I mean, we've had a pandemic explosion since we last spoke. I mean, it was coming, but, and I think we were both aware of it, but, but yeah. How, how, how are you guys safe? Oh yeah. Yeah. We're fine. We're, um, we're in Washington, which was the epicenter for the United States. So, um, they started cracking down on it. I think pretty, a lot stronger, um, than some places. So yeah, they, they canceled schools till the end of April. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, restaurants. There's no more restaurants. <laughs> oh, all restaurants are closed down for you in Washington state. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. We're heading uh, here in Toronto. We're heading towards um, pretty much full lockdown. I think that non-essential businesses will probably be closed tomorrow. I think the main concern is around the border because um, you know, 
we're not that here up here we're not we're not as we're not entirely fond of how the u.s administration has handled containment so actually that's one it's funny because um one of the posts that i read in uh, one of the groups that i'm in was that the only reason that this yogi bhajan story hasn't become you know more um publicized is that is that there's this virus going on so i don't know how true that is but it's an it's a interesting theory that well in terms of in terms of media attention there's only so much to go around i can say that um it was last thursday i think that my second article on shivananda yoga was released through janet medium and uh whereas the first one i think had something like 30,000 views in the first day. Uh, I think the total views for the second one uh, are around 12 or 13,000 views. And, and you know, within a few hours of the publishing date, the WHO had, you know, used pandemic in their definition of the crisis. Uh, I think that was the first big 10-point drop in the Dow that afternoon. Um, so... So yeah, uh, I think there is definitely something to uh, you know media resources and what journalists have time to pay attention to for sure. Yeah. So when we ended last time we were speaking, we were getting into this really interesting topic of spiritual names, and then we had to go. So I actually I was hoping we could talk about moving forward in right. this episode. For sure. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting thing to launch off of because so many people are using their spiritual names from this tradition, but also like myself, I've actually legally changed my name. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in this thing, like I, I had been asking myself actually, even before this happened, because I, I was starting to question a lot of this years ago, I was starting to think like, gee, do I want a name that's associated with this? Should I change my name again? And then I was thinking, well, names are interesting in general because you don't necessarily agree with what your great-grandfather did, and yet there you are with his name, you know? So I was hoping you could speak to that. Right. I think the first thing that it brings up, and I might have mentioned this at the tail end of our last discussion, is that um, there's a kind of working theory in a lot of the cult literature about the pre-group identity and then the post-group identity. And uh, one of the things that uh, in recovery from a high demand group is often called upon is uh, the reestablishment of relationships with people who knew you, you knew you before you changed. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I, I don't I don't know what your your given names were, uh, but there's a lot of people who do. Right. <laughs> and the question is, um, one question would be you know, whatever your given names were, what do, what do those people remember of that person? And, um, and, you know, and for you who, you know, it sounds like, it sounds like you've spent a number of years gradually moving away from the group. Um, that might not be as acute, but for somebody who's kind of waking up, uh, quite suddenly or acutely to, oh, uh, what have I actually been part of? Uh, then there might be a starker difference between the group identity uh, that is actually consecrated by the name, sealed up really by the name, uh, and the the everything that the birth name represents. I mean, the birth name is also the the transition from birth name to spiritual name is also pertinent 
in relation to the fact that the most high demand groups end up actively superseding familial bonds in terms of uh, uh, allegiance and importance. So, um, you know, especially according to Alexandra Stein, who applies attachment theory to cultic dynamics, the primary job of the group is to uh, make the group itself the primary caregiving uh, structure. Uh, and in that sense, it's going to uh, override the, the, the family constellations. And even it's, it will rewire the attachment patterning that, that people came, came in with. So there's something really super symbolic and also uh, very poignant about the change to the spiritual name and the adoption of the spiritual name. And I think as an outsider, when I look at Kundalini yoga culture in general, hmm. the change to the name, the change of name is, it will be reinforced by uh, a, you know, radical change in daily behavior, but then also a change in dress and, and, uh, and accoutrement and, you know, vi you know, presentation and bearing, social bearing in the world. So uh, there are really distinct markers of, ah, now I have crossed over into a different type of reality, and this is what I belong to now. And uh, those things can all be really, really helpful and um, transformative for people, and they can also disconnect them from the continuity of the rest of their lives. I th and I, I think that is something that, so I see, I see a number of sort of like mini struggles going on. You know, one of them is, have I been part of a cult? The second one is, are these teachings legitimate? Um, you know, and then that, that other one, which is like, I'm sorry, what did you just mention? My, my, my morning brain is not as acute as mine. <laughs> um, I, I think I, 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 gave, I, I gave a whole list, so I, I, I'd have to. There's a few. Yes, yeah, so there's a few yeah. things going on, but um, I, I, for example, never, never had to give up my family ties or anything like that. But I sort of see that as a product of having come into this at a time when the the leader, still very much present in the culture, had died. Right. Um, and I actually watched the Bikram documentary this weekend and I, I was thinking how that kind of plays into, you know, this versus, versus the Bikram yoga community who's, you know, watching Bikram go and do these trainings in other countries, you know, um, we're, we're not seeing that in the Kundalini yoga community because Yogi Bhajan is deceased, which means one, you know, he's not a predator anymore. So we're not afraid of that, but it also means that the people who have stories aren't able to kind of see his realization of, of this. Right. Well, I mean, uh, w one thing to say about the comparison between Bikram and uh, what's happening in KY is that um, anecdotally, what I've heard from a number of sources is that uh, it's in, is that the news has, and the revelations have been slower to penetrate uh, non-English speaking communities than they have, I mean, the Premka group is in English. Uh, and, you know, so I'm fielding, you know, emails and DMs from people in Spanish speaking countries and Portuguese speaking countries uh, and, um, and Italian speaking countries. And they, you know, people are, 
describing being extremely isolated within cultures that for the most part have not allowed the information to penetrate. Maybe it's, there's a language barrier, maybe there are cultural barriers. I know that in many of um, the modern yoga movements that have imploded in one area of the world, usually the English speaking area of the world, uh, they, will, uh, they can actually gain strength and a kind of resilience in other places. Uh, so, um, you know, two groups in which that's currently happening is uh, in the Ashtanga yoga world, the teachings and trainings are actually ramping up in Eastern Europe and in Russia uh, because there's an active anti-Me Too movement in uh, these places that looks at you know, my book or looks at the work at work of people like Karen Rain or Jubilee Cook as being part of some sort of Western liberal conspiracy to undermine, you know, patriarchal righteousness or something like that. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if you see some of that as well taking place within the broader KY community. Um, so it's not like there's going to be some sort of evenness of, of revelation or everybody being on the same page. And, and uh, it, when leaders are still alive, what will happen is that they will go from places where the media has um, uh, damaged their brand to places where the media hasn't touched them yet. And um, so I'd be interesting to see in the internal politics of, of, of KY, whether that starts to happen, whether people who, you know, maybe made their their mark on the world in, in Los Angeles will suddenly decide that uh, it would be really good to set up in Thailand or something like that. Um, so, yeah. Um, but I mean, you're, I think the general theme that we're discussing is like, how do we identify uh, according to the group? And um, just to come back to uh, names for a moment, um, you, you know, when, when I, I'm really, I'm, I'm really interested in, in the number of people who might have actually legally changed their names. Do you have a sense of how many people did that? I, I heard from one of the elders once that people weren't doing it as much as they used to. Right. Um, but no, I don't, I don't really know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because that's a that's a huge investment, right? I mean, that ends up getting on all your ID, and and um, it creates, I guess, it creates a new credit trail and all of that stuff. Yeah, I did it at a time when I was going to change my name to my husband's at the time name, so right. it seemed like, well, might as well, you know, might as well do the whole thing. I'm gonna have to change all my credit cards anyway, kind of thing. Um, right. We didn't have to change our birth certificate, although you can, you can opt to do that. Right. And, and everybody that knew me then still knows me and they either call me by my, you know, by Sirgan or I used to be Porter, you know, and so it. Right. Right. Um, now you, I'm wondering too, I know you're supposed to be asking me questions, but I'm wondering <laughs> if I can ask you. Um, it's you a conversation. Must, <laughs> right. You must, you must be of the age uh, at which your own entrance into the group um, you know, you're meeting people who are your age, but who are actually born into it as well, mm -hmm. right? Now, and um, just to say a little bit more about group identification and the pre-group self and the post-group self, 
I'm also very interested to see what happens to the so-called India kids and the, you know, the people who are first and perhaps even second generation now Kundalini Yoga, because um, they're in a, an extraordinary position in the sense that there is no pre-group self. Mm-hmm. Um, the best resource for this, in if if your readers are interested, is uh, Janja Lalich's uh, "Escaping Utopia." The subtitle is "Growing Up in a Cult, Getting Out, and Starting Over." And and you know, it's a great subtitle, but it but she's actually describing an extraordinarily difficult process because um, when you are brought up within the reality of you know Sikh Dharma as being the world. Um, it's very difficult to actually conceptualize what it would be like to not have that authority framework. Um, one of the groups that I study in depth and I've got a feature coming out on is uh, Shambhala International. And they're into their second generation of people born into the group. And the group was so tightly unified around the premise that Chogyam Trungpa was actually uh, some sort of divine emperor, worldly, worldly yet divine emperor of a mystical, I don't know, paradigm called the kingdom of Shambhala that, you know, these, some of these kids were given passports when they were born. Um, they were, uh, you know, where their names are written in Tibetan and English. Uh, some of them are given, you know, ceremonial money. Um, they are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're brought into, uh, sun camp when they're kids during the summer and they're taught the national anthem of Shambhala. Um, like it's, it's, there's almost like a pseudo government that is created alongside the real world except that a lot of the kids don't actually get to live for very long in the real world. Um, And that creates a lot of problems um, when the group falls apart, when the parents leave, when, you know, the child becomes a teenager and they go, geez, what what else is out there or or what's going on? Or when one of those children becomes a victim of institutional abuse and they don't have anywhere to turn to because all of the adults that they know are actually complicit within the group. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's, you know, if, if our general topic is how do we identify in relationship to the group and what are the markers by which, you know, we're committed, uh, it's really the, the people who are born into it that are, um, you know, extraordinarily enmeshed uh, to the point where the group identity is, is, can feel as though it's really woven into their DNA. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I see that. Um... And I, and I saw that, you know, when I would hear the stories from my friends who grew up, um, you know, going to India and being part of the schools that were at that point, not, um, an actual Kundalini yoga school. They were in India, an Indian boarding school. Right. Um, So, you know, now the school exists in a different form and people don't come back with nearly as many bad stories. Um, but but I would hear the stuff that happened um, just to one friend and I, I could not understand how she could not be angry with her parents. Right. Um, it was really, it was really hard for me, but you know, at a certain point I was like, well, okay. I mean, I, I can't, you know, 
I can't tell you how to feel about this. And I, but I, I knew there was like, just a not thinking about it kind of like, well, that's just how things are. Um, well, also we, we have to consider the gradations of safety, right? Hmm. It's like, it's like if, if the, if there is parental neglect and this, this is very, very common within, within high demand groups, uh, because the basic premise is that, uh, the, the group itself will take care of the children. Uh, and if the group doesn't take care of the children, then the leader's mission will take care of the children. If the leader's mission doesn't take care of the children, then the leader's ideology will take care of the children. There's always some sort of buck passing on up to a vaguer and more abstract authority. Um, and so, you know, for, for most of the children that I've, or children who are now grown up, who grew up in groups like this, who I've spoken to, it's very, very difficult for them to, um, I mean, there's a spectrum. Some, 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 of them, some of them are enraged at their parents, mm-hmm. um, but that has usually resulted in the very difficult social circumstance of being totally alienated from them. And then they lose that family support. They lose, they have to start over somewhere entirely differently, entirely different. Um, But I would say in more cases, I've spoken to people who uh, have done their best to rebond with their parents in opposition to the group that, so that, so that the family unit can um, generate its own kind of, internal understanding of its relationship to the group uh, and and gain some sort of oppositional power or resilience power that way. And also many of the children that I've spoken to who've grown up in groups like these um, express a great deal of empathy, especially for their mothers uh, in relation to uh, the amount of, of social control that they realized the family was, was under. And so... Um, yeah, there's a spectrum of, of expressions for sure. I would say that, you know, just off the bat, the person who, who doesn't express any kind of misgiving or anger or, 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 or even irritation towards their parents, like, you know, what did you actually choose for me here? Uh, my guess would be, without knowing anything about the, 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 the person, is that uh, for them, the parents are still a source of, a legitimate source of safety. Uh, in opposition to the group, right? Uh, or I, I, in terms of buffering uh, the child from the group itself. So it's very, very complex. Um, and and when groups get intergenerational, the line between family allegiance and cultic allegiance becomes erased. And so when people are recovering from that situation, that line has to reform somehow. Like, oh no, this is my family. This is this was my home growing up. This is these are the relationships that I'm committed to. I don't have to, you know, continually sort of uh choose the group over my parents anymore. Or my parents, you know, ideally shouldn't have to choose the group over me. Um, but with regard to, and with regard to this, I'm just remembering uh, on the subject of, of parental neglect. And by parental neglect, I'm, I'm not using that, that, that phrase in a way that um, I, I hope feels shaming uh, in any way. It's, it's just simply a fact that um, when 
uh, when when children are brought up in these groups, there's usually a sense of communal care, um, but there is very often no clear sense of who's actually in charge, uh, except for the overarching authority of the group itself or the leader's sort of, you know, sensibility or their or their mission or their or their demands mm -hmm. um one of the groups that i was in um i had a stepdaughter at the time and i think when we entered she was probably i don't know i want to say seven or eight years old something like that and uh she grew up with a number of kids who were her age and because i was the step parent uh i was already a little bit arm's length in terms of responsibility. I certainly played uh, a very, very strong role, but I, I wasn't the one who was making any kind of final, final decisions about anything. And, you know, she already had two parents. So, um, but what I do remember is that uh, there was this general sense amongst the adults that, oh, the kids are going to be fine. Oh, the kids are just, you know, the kids are just going to be, you know, uh, they're getting along. In fact, they're smarter than us. Uh, you know, they're, they're pure, they're free. Uh, they are, um, you know, what, what can go wrong for them? They're actually held in a very loving environment that's not part of the outside world, which is filled with all kinds of delusions about what the nature of reality is. So, um, so yeah, I, I, think that I so I have this personal experience of this bias towards not really centering yourself as the parent uh, the person who can take full responsibility because your capacity to take full responsibility for yourself actually has been uh, stripped or degraded by the group you're not responsible for yourself actually uh, you, you're, you're, you know, when you're under undue influence, somebody else is calling the shots anyway. So it's actually very difficult to reposition yourself as the parent, uh, the one who is going to be uh, the end of the line with regard to the care of the child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, I've, you know, I've actually never experienced much of any negative anything from being part of this group besides what I feel to be sort of an internal struggle with myself and you know how I how I live my life and how my my yearning to you know to be making my own decisions you know outside of this box of thinking that I that I joined but right. um, one of the things that has been so amazing about being part of the Kundalini community was that aspect of um, you know, for example, like when, when women have babies, we do this 40 day thing, the whole, right. you know, gives meals, you know, to, to the, to the mother. Um, right. And I wouldn't say we exclude, you know, people ha didn't like exclude other people from joining that either. So there's, there, it was a very fuzzy line between, you know, where the group, where, how the group defined itself. Cause there, it wasn't like we all lived on a compound. Right. Um, we were very much integrated into, into society, but with this internal idea of who we were right. um, in relation to other people. I wonder if you could talk about that. Well, um, I mean, I don't know if I used last in our last conversation, uh, the, the, the wildfire metaphor, um, 
for yeah, hot spots. Right, right. I, I think that I think what you're speaking about gets to the same kind of uh, territory, which is which is um, when does a you know when does a high demand group become uh, become safe <laughs> in a way? Like at, at what at what periphery away from the center? At what you know? Um, I guess what would you say uh, circle away from the center? Are we talking about you know a fairly strongly bonded community that is relatively healthy? Uh, and I would say that. Uh, to the extent that you're going to find spaces in the Kundalini Yoga world where people are not lying to each other, uh, they are not uh, creating systems of emotional or financial dependency amongst each other. They're not putting people in a position where they dread leaving, uh, where there is no behavioral control or informational control or thought control or emotional control. Um, th that's very possible. Um, you know, and so if you're describing, if you're describing a, a sort of Kundalini outpost or or kind of franchise community that is actually taking care of itself without you know vertical power structures that yeah. are manipulating those who have less power, that's total. That's entirely possible. And then the only thing to be to be aware of there is whether or not the the ideology that's communicated within that relatively safe group acts as a kind of gateway or what Hannah Arendt calls a transmission belt into the center. Right. Like if if a person if a person really, really enjoys the community care that they participated in during the 40 days postnatal um, and gets the idea that what they would like to do is to become a teacher in this or to train further or or they really want to connect to, to the source of this teaching then the question is um, who's the person who would have authority in that group and where would they direct that recruit to because that's kind of like the key question with regard to whether and whether or not a person gets far closer towards the center or closer towards you know one of the hot spots where these stronger ties of deception, dependence, and dread of leaving start to be pulled. Yeah. Well, those are some interesting considerations. I obviously don't have an answer. <laughs> but, right. Um, I mean, I, one one example that I can use one example that I can use is that, like from the Ashtanga world, is that um, you know there are hundreds of local Ashtanga yoga shalas mm -hmm. uh, in urban centers, uh, rural centers all over the world. Uh, you know, dozens of different languages people are teaching in. Um, and, you know, uh, technically, you can't get authorized to teach Ashtanga Yoga or certified to teach Ashtanga Yoga except through the blessing, the physical blessing of the Joyce family. Um, now, if you are of the older generation that was certified by Patabi Joyce before he died in 2009, then, uh, then you definitely got your um, permission to teach in relationship to his body. And what I mean by that is that he had to see you every year, uh, probably for three years, maybe as many as six years, but you had to stay for several months at a time. And every single day he'd have his hands on you to quote unquote, adjust you into the correct posture or give you permission to go further. Now, 
that is completely inextricable from physical and sexual assault. And so anybody who is certified by Patabi Joyce uh, either uh, witnessed uh, or suffered through physical and sexual assault, uh, it's possible that there are some people who will still earnestly say, I had no idea that that was going on. Uh, but I think that um, the, the, you know, that's, that's super hard to assess. But what I can say about that is if you didn't know it was going on, that doesn't mean that you have gone on to provide safe space, right? In fact, if you were unaware that you were in an environment of implied consent and somatic dominance, uh, that's, a probably, that's probably a good indication that you would be unaware if you were recreating that in your own studio. So anyway, it's really hard to teach Ashtanga Yoga without a direct somatic relationship to a physical and sexual abuser. Um, Sharath Joyce is now the authorizer slash certifier for Ashtanga Yoga. Now, uh, there's, there are no reports of sexual assault against him, but uh, there are many anecdotal reports of him injuring people through adjustments. Mm. And so, and it's not like, you know, Sharath Joyce has changed uh, the family policy around adjustments. He might not be sexually assaulting people, but it's not like he's using consent cards. He's not, you know, it's not like he went out and he got you know, massage therapy training or, you know, did any special medical studies or anything like that. So, um, so, so what, uh, what, what's the upshot? The upshot is anybody who teaches at a legitimate Ashtanga Yoga Mysore Shala program anywhere in the world will have a bodily, visceral, direct connection to this family that has a deeply unresolved abuse issue. And, so for the student in Toronto or Ottawa or Berlin or whatever who walks into that studio, what are the chances of them encountering real safety? It's possible. It's possible that that teacher, you know, will have somehow learned consent, will somehow have learned how to provide informed consent for adjustments, will know something about safe spaces, will know something about you know, trauma awareness. It's possible that they will be able to provide a safer space than the Joyce family did. Um, but uh, let's say that they haven't been clear about the abuse history in the lineage, and that it's not listed on their bio. They haven't made any kind of statement about it. Um, and let's say that while their own teaching is uh, relatively safe or kind or empathetic, that on their front desk they have a series of Ashtanga materials, literature, books, videos uh, that all identify the Joyce family as being the kind of sainted channel through which this method comes. And let's say that the really dedicated student in Toronto or Ottawa or Berlin says, oh, okay. Um, well, this is a really amazing practice. I want to learn more about it. How do I go and do that? Uh, it's at that moment that the teacher uh, is able to say, well, actually, you know, it's fine if you just learn with me. Uh, or they say, well, if you really want to go to the source, you've got to go back to my source. Mm -hmm. And if they say that second thing, they are acting as recruiters for the organization. Right. right. Um, and so, and so, you know, in the theme of moving forward, which is the phrase that you used in the beginning of our conversation, uh, the question comes up over and over again, you know, what do I do 
if I learned how to teach yoga within an abusive organization or with an organization that, that has an institutional abuse history. And my answer to that, uh, that, that, I, that I offered in my book is, um, to, uh, is, to, is, to, is to foster transparency around your educational history and to actually take a public stand around your relationship to the school that you went to, uh, and then to show somehow your clients, your student base, the people that you're gonna be providing services to, how you have understood the problem of your school and how you've mitigated for it. So what this means is, you know, don't erase your bio because you know you went to because your your teacher trainer in Iyengar was Manuso Manos and you know he's been thrown out for sexual abuse you you write down you keep your bio exactly as it was you know you did these trainings with Manuso Manos and then oh 2019 uh it it was shown to me through this investigation and that investigation that Manos actually has a history of sexual assault. This is what I know about this. Um, this is these are the suspicions I had. If that that if that's true, and then the person should go on and say, uh, and because my education has obviously been compromised, uh, here's what I've done to mitigate that compromise. Here's the trauma awareness training that I've taken. Uh, here's the you know yoga service council work that I've done. Uh, this is how I've become a mandated reporter in my community for sexual abuse. Um, you have to show the public that you understand where you came from and how you've dealt with it, because anybody can Google. Uh, and anybody can figure out that, um, oh, this certificate that you've been waving around from an abusive institution is not, that's not, that's not good anymore. <laughs> that's actually a liability. And the thing is that, that people in the Ashtanga world and in the Iyengar world uh, in particular have been waving around their certificates for the last 40 years saying, I went to Pune every year for 40 years. Well, that is actually not a good sign anymore. Um, what would be a good sign is for you to say, I went to Pune for 40 years. I kind of woke up from a bit of a dream. I learned a lot of good things there, but there were some bad things going on there too. And this is how I've um, uh, tried to educate myself to make sure that I don't pass the bad things along with the good. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the person who has utterly failed to do this, or one of many, I would say, is somebody like Eddie Stern, who is, you know, the primary uh, teacher of, of American representative of the Joyce family in terms of Ashtanga yoga. Uh, and after my book came out and, and a bunch of, there was a bunch of negative press, uh, he, um, uh, closed his yoga school in Brooklyn. I mean, there's probably an economic thing going on there. Uh, but then he also uh, just rebranded his own yoga business under his own name. So if you go to eddiestern.com and you go to uh, bio, I don't think he mentions uh, Patabi Joyce's name. Okay. And the thing is, is that nobody would know who Eddie Stern was without Patabi Joyce. So it's like he's accumulated this social privilege through... Uh, a relationship with a yoga institution with an unresolved abuse history, now it's erased. That's not safety. Right. Um, there's a guy specific to Kundalini Yoga. Um, maybe you know of uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. 
who uh, is yeah he's he's a he's an MD who is Canadian. He works in the amongst marginalized populations in East Vancouver, uh, which is you know kind of like the 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 epicenter for um, uh, substance issues and homelessness and sex work in uh, Vancouver. And uh, he recently paired, not recently, but several years ago, paired up with uh, Satdaram Kar here in Ontario, who is a naturopathic doctor. And they created together, and I think there were other people involved, they created a... Um, uh, a yoga program or a yoga and addiction recovery program called Beyond Addiction. And, um, you know, two or three years ago, it became clear to me that Kundalini Yoga had this hidden abuse history and that it was going to explode. I was talking to Philip at the time. Uh, I had done my own research into the lawsuits. And uh, I wrote to Dr. Mate and I said, uh, to his publicist, anyway, uh, and I said, look, you know, um, I understand the virtue of partnering with Kundalini Yoga uh, for this particular program, but are you aware that this is an organization that has an unresolved abuse history? Because uh, anybody who Anybody who walks into a Beyond Addiction program who has a trauma history, uh, who has a sexual abuse history, anybody can Google this lawsuit uh, brought by Kate Felt, and they're not going to feel safe in this program, which is, you know, ostensibly offering healing on many levels to 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 the to the participants. So, you know, are you concerned about this? And the publicist wrote back and said. Um, you know, Dr. Mate is aware that the potential for abuse exists in every institution. I was like, that is not an answer. Um, <laughs> you know, are you actually going to take a look at this material? Is it going to be of interest to you? Are you going to, you know, investigate? Are you going to ask Satdaram Kar or anybody else who's running that program, how do you stand in relationship to uh, the, the this abuse history because nobody professionalizes into kundalini yoga without benefiting from the silence of yogi bhajan's victims um, so it's just it's it's something that people have to become transparent about and they have to uh, they have to show that they've done their research I don't see any other way around it yeah that's I I really appreciate you bringing up that point about transparency. I think that that's um, really, really beautiful because I think, um, you know, if you have been involved, especially I, I'm thinking about one of the, the teachers that is one of the bigger teachers in Kundalini Yoga, Guru Singh, who just put out this um, public apology that was... Right. Really? Did, did you happen to read that? I, I did read it. I found it very interesting. I'd be interested to hear what, you, what your, your take on it was. Well, you know, I don't know him on a personal level, so I can't say what, you know, what he's specifically referring to because he, he alludes to a lot of stuff in the, in the apology. Um, but I felt like it was the sort of boldest statement that someone of his generation had made um, up into that, you know, up into that point publicly. 
Well, it's interesting for you as an insider or as a former insider to say that you weren't quite sure what he was referring to, because I think that says a lot, because what stood out to me about that statement was its vagueness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, it, it was, it was, very, it was obviously uh, beautifully written. It was, uh, it seemed to be emotionally engaged. Uh, and it also seemed to suggest that, oh, wow, I've been, I've been, waking up from a cult-like dream uh, after all of these years. Now, um, that, I think we have to be really clear about the difference between a confession that you might bring to therapy mm -hmm. and a statement that is appropriate for you to make as a public figure. You know, here's somebody I understand who's like, you know, has strong leadership, um, I don't know, power within the global community. Uh, and, you know, and, and if they have attained that position through, and I don't know, I just want to be clear, I don't know anything about this guy, but if they have attained that position through um, closeness to Bajan, through um, mimicking a certain amount of the charisma of Bajan or sharing it, but not sharing so much of it that they actually were booted out at the right time, because this is often what happens is that, uh, especially, um, male lieutenants who, who, who attain too much power close to the leader will get, will get excommunicated. Mm -hmm. Um, the person who is able to attain social power in a group like that, um, usually cannot have done so without a combination of facilitating, enabling, and bystanding in relationship to abuse. And so um, now he might come out and be specific about what he's actually sorry about. Uh, so I don't want to like foreclose on that. But I do want to say that um, if, the, if the statement remains on the level of uh, kind of expressing uh, emotional sorrow or regret or something like that without getting specific, um, then I, I think, I think people who are reading really want to look at whether or not they are being further emotionally manipulated because, um, you know, it, it would, it would be very effective for a leader in that position to, uh, generate empathy. Uh, and what is more appropriate uh, at at this particular juncture is uh, accountability, mm -hmm. uh, and also and specifically uh, accountability with regard to okay, well, what's going to happen now for survivors? Because as soon as somebody who has social and financial capital within the organization starts speaking uh, about, you know, in in the stream of reform. Uh, I, what I want to hear is, okay, where's the money? Uh, how are you actually going to care for the people whose lives were ruined by this group? Um, do we have an idea of how much money uh, Pamela Dyson had to put into therapy over the years? Do we have any idea what uh, the India kids have had to spend on, you know, uh, uh, psychiatric appointments or body work or, or you know, uh, treating their PTSD or what have you? Uh, show me the money. Your emotions are great, but I would like to see, like, real steps towards accountability, especially if you continue to enjoy social power and capital in the group. 
Yeah, I, having having experienced him as a teacher, I have I'm optimistic about where where his um, actions are going to go. So we'll see. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I said, I don't want to, I, I don't know anything about it and I don't want to foreclose on, on the possibility. No. And, um, and we don't really know. It's just that it. like it's, it's become kind of a secondary study of mine to look at abuse crisis statements. Mm -hmm. And it's very rare that, um, uh, leaders in organizations that have benefited from institutional abuse, uh, actually do them well, usually because they, I, they often believe that um, being a good guy, uh, showing the fruit of your spiritual practice, let's say, um, you know, connecting with your heart, doing all of those things that the content of the practice is telling everybody that it's supposed to happen, uh, they usually think that that's enough and, or that it's the best place to start. Mm -hmm. And uh, from a survivor's point of view, it's not really the place to start. <laughs> uh, the place to start is, uh, okay, um, uh, who's going to be in charge of creating safety now? Mm -hmm. Not who is going to win over more hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. <laughs> um, we just have a few minutes left. I, um, I would love to hear you say, talk about anything else you feel like is important for someone to hear that wants to move forward? Maybe, maybe um, what I'd say is just continuing on this theme. And I've written uh, a couple of things that I'll send links to about this, is that uh, Kundalini Yoga is now entering the reform stage of the abuse crisis. Uh, I mean, maybe that's premature. It's there, there's a quote unquote investigatory stage. Uh, but really the details are, uh, and the, and the, and the bare bones or the, the, you know, the, the raw facts of people's narratives are out and circulating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever an olive branch does to formalize those, those narratives, you know, that's going to have, there's going to be some advantage there. Uh, I have some questions about um, whether or not they're the appropriate uh, organization for it. Um, but what I think people in your community and, you know, or your former community want to be really aware of is who starts jostling for position as a reformer. And, and and what are they what are they using in order to do this? I, I wrote a little analysis of um, you know uh, of of Snatam Kar's statement where she describes that you know uh, the the mantras will always be at the heart of how I heal myself and conjoin with community. Um, and I, my point there was to say the mantras were used during periods of of enforcing institutional abuse as well. So let's not pretend that they have some magical ability to bring peace and transparency and, and justice. Um, and I don't know that she's, you know, trying to become a reformer, but I would just say, like, pay very close attention to people who are already professionalized at a high level within, within Kundalini Yoga, suddenly having revelations about how they should change everything. Uh, and, you know, maybe they'll go on and offer, you know, trauma awareness training in Kundalini Yoga or something like that. Don't accept that. That would be my advice. Uh, 
any anybody who is currently in a leadership position professionally in kundalini yoga is likely unqualified to be a, a robust voice of reform uh, and alternatively uh, what people can look to is uh, what survivors of sexual abuse within yoga communities and Buddhist communities have started to put together in terms of policies and procedures going forward. So um, I think anybody who's trying to do any reform within Kundalini Yoga who is not hiring Karen Rain or somebody like that as a consultant uh, to you know, vet all of their materials and to, you know, approve who's going to be teaching what or to at least give feedback. They're not really doing reform. There's a, you, you have to, we have to be able to distinguish between, between reform and rebranding and rebranding is just not going to cut it. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think that <laughs> it gives us all a lot to think about. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Anybody. Okay. So, so the parallel there would be, you know, anybody who tries to, anybody who tries to do re real reform within Kundalini yoga, who is not figuring out how to uh, pay somebody like Pamela Dyson for their advice mm -hmm. um, as a consultant uh, in a way that makes, that is safe for her. I mean, she might not want to do it, but, but that would be the first question. It's like, Oh, wow. You had the courage and the clarity and the lucidity to, after 25 years or whatever it was, to actually lay this all out for us. Uh, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to hire you with the significant resources that I have from this multinational corporation uh, to figure out what people like you would have needed in order to be safe or to come forward. And so, and, and you know, Again, I'm not speaking for Pamela at all. She might not want to do it. She might not care. Uh, and so then that conversation ends there. But the person who wants to reform Kundalini Yoga, who's not seeking the consultation of a survivor of the organization, isn't really doing the work. Yeah, and one of the things that I mean, you could you could speak about that if you if you feel like it about the an olive branch is that they will only be looking at um, stories from people directly abused by Yogi Bhajan, um, whereas the organization has perpetuated abuse in many other ways, such as you know for the kids who were sent to India who right. Right. By the right. I mean, I, I, I have a feeling, I don't feel entirely prepared to analyze the olive branch uh, mandate, but I do can say in general that uh, I think they know because I've, because I've seen them work uh, with the Shambhala organization and I've studied how that's gone a little bit. Uh, I can say that I haven't been confident that uh, that the investigative team is large enough, uh, that it has the legal expertise, uh, that it is going to be able to uh, figure out its mandated reporting um, uh, um, uh, necessities or directives according to jurisdiction. Um, also, um, you know, the... the the whole sort of premise of the organization is bending towards a spiritualized form of restorative justice. And that might not be appropriate for survivors. Then there are questions about the scope for sure. 
Right. I mean, the a fundamental premise of cult studies is that nobody abuses alone. Mm-hmm. And so if the, if the, if the research is limited to, you know, who did Yogi Bhajan directly assault or financially abuse, then that's going to give you a very narrow picture that uh, can actually work to the institution's advantage because then they can ostensibly pretend as though, well, we've dealt with that or we've sealed that off or we've gotten rid of a bad apple who is dead anyway. And now we know the full truth of things. But, um, you know, a real investigation would have to be open-ended. Uh, it would have to be inviting uh, testimonies of uh, abuse from from the entire organization over the last forty years. Yeah, yeah. And that and that would take money. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, I think it it's being it seems to me, and I could be wrong, <laughs> but it seems to me that the intention of it is not so much to you know, get to the bottom of all abuse and, but to sort of like lightly, you know, lightly ask the question, did he really do this or did he not really do this? Because that's, I think that's for the people inside the organization, that's what they might be most curious about. Right. I mean, um, a parallel uh, situation that I'm much more familiar with, and also because it's ongoing, is with the investigation that has been commissioned by the Shivananda Yoga Organization into uh, institutional abuse there. And uh, it was prompted by, uh, or it was responding to uh, the story or the testimony released by Julie Salter back in December that I then went on to report in January. Uh, that was against Vishnu Devananda himself, the founder of the organization. He died in 1993. They initially said, responded by saying, well, we will hire an independent investigator for this uh, to assess whether or not the testimonies of the women who spoke about Vishnu Devananda was tr- were true or not. Uh, and so here's the thing, is that is that Julie Salter, who worked for the organization for... I'm trying to remember. I think Pamela Dyson is 16 years, and I think Julie is 17 years for Shivananda. Um, the first communication that she'd had from Shivananda Yoga in years was from their lawyer saying, I would like to meet with you to find out whether what you're saying is true. And she's like, Nope, actually, I wrote what was true. I don't need to talk to you about it as well. Uh, and so, you know, there are there's an there's an internal argument about you know the efficacy of talking to the organization's appointed lawyer or not. You know, is she going to be good at that? Is she going to issue good recommendations? There's also questions about the initial scope of the investigation, which has since been expanded to the institutional level. So. Yeah, you're you're hitting on all of the main points that are going to uh, come into sharp relief in the Kundalini story. Um, is an olive branch going to be sensitive with survivors' details? Uh, are they going to start from the perspective of trust uh, or belief? Are they going to start from the um, uh, from the perspective or with the mandate of looking at institutional abuse and complicity, or are they just going to focus on what, you know, one bad guy did? 
um, yeah, those those questions are all going to be really interesting to to explore for the community. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for you You're know welcome. sharing what you know about all of this. Um, it's uh, I heard from the last podcast that it was just people were listening to it you know multiple times because it was uh, so new. <laughs> right. Great. So well, I, 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 I thank you so much for the opportunity. And um, I also uh, just want to own that as a two-time cult survivor myself, sometimes uh, I get a little bit, you know, um, impassioned about these things. And so I hope I don't come across as, uh, as, as, as unsympathetic. I, I think that anybody who is navigating through this abuse crisis is in an awful position and um, it hurts a lot and um, and and it but it gets better uh, it gets better through education it gets better through uh, re-establishing you know outside community connections or forming new friendships uh, and so I really hope that goes well for all of your listeners uh, as they uh, sort of reframe how they stand in relationship to the organization, which is, which has, which has probably given them a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's that separation of, it's that sort of mental sorting of like, all right, what do I keep and what do I release? You know, Absolutely. And maybe one, one thought to leave everybody with is that, is that um, what, what you keep probably more often than not is, what you created uh and it's a sign of it's probably it's probably less uh what you received from an abusive organization than what you were able to make uh according to your own virtue and your skill and your own goodness your own earnestness Mm -hmm. um one of my favorite quotes from uh one of the legal scholars who works on this stuff is you know the high demand group takes the best part of you and uh, but the corollary to that is, in, in a way, uh, y- y- you you also you also leave with the best part of you uh, if if you you really take account of oh these are all of the things that I learned how to do these are the strong bonds that I made you know I I one of the groups that I was in I learned how to cook and. Um, you know, there was 300 people in the ashram. And on every Wednesday, uh, my friend Rupi and I would make dinner for all 300 people, just the two of us. And we spent all day doing it. And it was the most fun I ever had in my life. And I, to this day, I mean, it's like almost 20 years later, um, I still make Rupi's recipes in my home for my own children. And I remember the joy and the exuberance of the cooking that he taught me. And like, that's never going to go away. And, 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 and so then what was the group in relationship to that? You know, what was, what was Endeavor Academy in relationship to that? It was, it was just the building in a way. Um, and we could have learned that anywhere. We could have we spent that time anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't have to feel conflicted about you know, the wonderful recipes that I'm able to pass on to my children. Uh, I can say, oh yeah, I got this from my friend and he really was my friend. We were there under strange circumstances, but, but you know, life is often strange, so it's okay. 
Oh, that's really beautiful. Thank you so much for leaving with that. All right. Take care. Take care.